Good morning, everybody. I've got some mother sayings for you. I know it's not Mother's Day yet, but this might be wisdom that you heard from your mom growing up. I know I heard some of these things. So here are some profundities that mom taught me. Number one, my mother taught me to appreciate a job well done. If you're going to kill each other, do it outside. I just finished cleaning. (laughs) Number two, my mother taught me religion. You better pray that will come out of the carpet. (laughs) Number three, my mother taught me logic. Because I said so, that's why. I heard that one a lot. Number four, my mother taught me more logic. If you fall out of the swing, break your neck and not go in the store with me. (laughs) Number five, my mother taught me foresight. Make sure you wear clean underwear in case you're in an accident. (laughs) Number six, my mother taught me irony. Not ironing, irony. Keep crying and I'll give you something to cry about. That one I heard a lot. Number seven, my mother taught me about the science of osmosis. Close your mouth and eat your supper. (laughs) My mother taught me about contortionism. Will you look at that dirt on the back of your neck? My mother taught me about stamina. You'll sit there until all that spinach is gone. For me, that was jello. Hated jello and it was miserable. My mother taught me about hypocrisy. If I told you once, I've told you a million times, don't exaggerate. My mother taught me about anticipation. Just wait until your father gets home. Yeah, I remember that one, yeah. My mother taught me about my roots. Shut that door behind you. Were you born in a barn? And my mother taught me wisdom. When you get to be my age, you'll understand. So I've come full circle. I've heard a lot of those things from my mom. I probably said some of them to my kids, and now I might have to say them to my grandson. I don't know. But we are starting a new series this week on family. And I know that when we say the word family, it doesn't mean one thing anymore. There's lots of different configurations of how families look these days. So Dave and I currently are empty nesters, but there's also traditional families. There's singles. There's single parents blended families with stepchildren, there's families with foster children and uh, adopted children, there's children that are being raised by their grandparents, there's um, families where there's just the, the husband and the wife, and then there's families now where millennials are living in the basement of their parents' home, and so that's a whole nother animal. So when I'm talking about families today, we're going to try and make this applicable to everybody because what we're really talking about is relationships, and family relationships can be worse that we have or they can be the best that we have. They really shape us, especially as children. And we couldn't pick our family that we were born into, right? We just kind of were stuck with it, so we had to deal with it. So what we want to find out is what is God's design for the family? And maybe we've gotten a little off track and we need to get back on track for his design. And we're going to find out why God loves families. He is a person of relationship, and he created mankind because he wanted a family and even though he is perfect his family's kind of dysfunctional sorry that's all of us you know you and me and everybody and even when God created the first man and woman and they were created perfectly and they had a perfect parent in God and they lived in a perfect environment they still made bad choices they still rebelled against God And so if God has issues with his initial family that was made in perfection, 
we're going to have issues in our families, right? We're going to have things we're going to have to work through. But we want families to be a good experience. And sometimes we have to get healed from things that happen in our family of origin so that that can happen. But God's desire is that families are something beautiful, something wonderful, something that we love, a place that we are loved. And so it's not easy to get there. And we're going to talk about there's a gap between what God's ideal is and what we experience. When we look at the Old Testament, and I just told you a story from the Old Testament, we see that there are not very many good role models. In fact, I was trying to think of a good role model of a family in the Old Testament, and I just <laughs> really couldn't come up with anything. Even King David, who was the man after God's own heart, and who was a worshiper and wrote the Psalms and a warrior and he did so many things right. He wasn't necessarily a good parent, especially at the beginning. And two of his sons rebelled against him and brought a lot of devastation in his life. So we have sometimes you know, a love-hate relationship with our family as we're trying to navigate things that we're going through. I grew up as the oldest in a family of four girls. And three of us sisters were really, really close in age, maybe three and a half years between all three of us. And then the fourth one came way, way, way behind, 13 years after me. But my one sister, Debbie, who was about two years younger than me, she had really nice taste in clothing. And I was really cheap. I would not go buy you know, new clothes at the mall because I was saving my money. But I would borrow her clothes from her closet to wear. And um, that made her really, really mad. <laughs> I mean, like furiously mad at me. And uh, I can understand why now. So Debbie, if you're watching this video, I'm really sorry that I did that to you. But um, yeah, we would do stupid things like that when you're growing up and you can make, we know how to push each other's buttons, isn't that true? You know, when you're in a family relationship and it's so close and compacted and there's nowhere to hide and you just know how to get on that other person's nerves. And when you're a kid, sometimes you do that on purpose. And hopefully when you become an adult, you learn not to do that anymore. That's not a good idea. So um, anyway, then I had another sister and she's about three years younger than me and she is the sweetest nicest kindest person you've ever met i've never seen her get angry have you ever seen trisha get angry it's really amazing i think i don't know that she she came from our parents because that's not what our family was like at all i'm not sure where she came from but she didn't fare so well in our family either because me and debbie took advantage of her and made her do stuff that we didn't want to do she was kind of like our little slave because she was always the peacemaker so i owe her apology to trish if you're watching this i'm sorry to you too so now we got all that cleared up but do you know that even jesus even jesus christ the son of god had trouble with his family on earth when he lived on the earth did you know that yeah, there was one time when he was out ministering and the crowds were getting so big and he was getting so popular and it said the disciples couldn't even stop and eat. Jesus couldn't stop and eat. And so you know Jesus' mom got upset about that. My baby's not eating. And so she went out to see what was going on and she took all Jesus' brothers. He had five brothers with her. And it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 20, uh, Jesus went home and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples could not even eat. And when his family heard about this, they went out to take custody of him. So they're going to arrest him, saying he's out of his mind. So his own family thought he was crazy. 
And it says in John's gospel that no, none of his brothers believed in him until after the resurrection. So he had a three and a half year ministry, did all these miracles, his own family didn't believe in him. That had to have hurt, right? So Jesus had a dysfunctional family. He had <laughs> problems in his own family, which is bizarre to think about. So this is the good news. If you have problems in your family, Jesus has been there, done that, and he can empathize with you, and he can help you work through it, and he can give you grace for it. That's what we're going to talk about today, that we need grace for our families. So we want to find out how God wants to restore families to his original design. And that is what he wants to do. He wants to restore. Jesus said he came to save that which was lost, to seek and save that which was lost. I know he was talking about people, but I think he was also talking about our whole way of doing things, our whole systems that we have in the world that are way off of the way that he designed them to be. And I think the family fits into that category. So Jesus came, and his coming, his death, and his resurrection marked a whole new way for people to relate to God, a whole new covenant, a whole new way that God was going to relate to people and people were going to relate to one another. But the culture that Jesus came into, the Jewish culture and the Roman culture 2,000 years ago, those family relationships were far from perfect. They had gotten way off of God's plan, even the Jewish people. In both Roman and Jewish culture, women were just property. They were like cattle. They could be bartered for, for marriage. They could be divorced by a man giving a woman, his wife, a certificate and saying, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. That was it. She had no recourse. There was nothing she could do. She couldn't appeal that. She, that was it. The marriage was over. And for her, though, if she wanted out of the marriage, the husband had to consent to it. So we see that women had very little rights, if any. Um, they didn't have any legal rights. They didn't have very many rights in spiritually. Um, and they pretty much were treated like property. And so when the disciples, or I'm sorry, the Pharisees came to Jesus and started asking him about the divorce question, and, and our topic today is not divorce, and that could be a whole topic, and it is an important topic, but we just want to see what Jesus did in Matthew 19. Some Pharisees in verse 3 came, to, came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason or for any and every reason, one passage says? And then Jesus says in verse 4, and I love this, he said, haven't you read the scriptures? Now these are people that memorized the Bible and Jesus was saying, did you read your Bible today? You don't even know what's in it. And he said, they record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. And then in verse 7, the Pharisees came back and they said, but why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce, what I just told you about, and send her away, they asked. And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. It was only as a concession. It was not this way from the beginning. So Jesus points us back to God's original design. He said, you guys have gotten way far off what God 
designed. Yeah, Moses did allow it because of the hardness of men's hearts. And that's the only reason. That is not God's design. So we see that Jesus gives us God's original standard, which is way up here. And the disciples even said, who should even get married then if that's the standard? That's so high. But what we don't want to do is try and lower the standard just to make us feel comfortable because we don't like that tension between what God's ideal is and what we're experiencing in our lives. And what we want to do is hold that ideal up and strive toward it and get God's help. Because believe me, God wants to help you with your families, with your marriages, with your parenting, with your singleness, whatever situation that you are in, God wants to help you be so successful in that relationship. All right. How were children viewed in the ancient world? Just even a little less than women. In the Roman Empire, they were seen as expendable Infant mortality rate was so high that sometimes children were not even named till after they were a week old just to see if they would live. And the head of the household would decide if they were going to keep that child or not. After it was born, they would just lay the child down, cut the umbilical cord, and the head of the household would come in and look. Maybe it was the wrong gender, maybe it had a defect. Didn't keep the child, and there were no orphanages back. Just leave it up to your imagination to what happened to those children. But they were not valued highly at all. Now, in Jewish culture, they were, high, they were valued a little bit more highly than that. But there's even a story about Jesus in the New Testament and children in Matthew 19. When children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them, the disciples rebuked the people that brought the children, the parents. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. So it wasn't just that Jesus loved children and he said, oh, aren't they sweet? I'm going to lay my hands on it. It was more than that. He was elevating them. He was saying, you adults, you need to be more like these kids. You need to have that innocence in your heart. You need to come to me as a child does. So he was elevating women. He was elevating children. So the coming of Jesus Christ really marks this change in how relationships are done in family, back to the way God said they should be. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we have not only the words of Jesus, but we have writers of the New Testament Peter and Paul, followers of Jesus, who expand on this ideal and they tell us exactly what does this look like to live in the kingdom of God in family relationships? What does that look like? How do people interact with one another? We know that, that God, Jesus elevated women and children and all people really but what does that just look like in our natural everyday lives? And again, what I'm going to show you from the scriptures, it's a really, really high ideal. In fact, sometimes we think, think that's so high, I just don't even think it's possible. And you know what? You're right. In your own strength, it is not possible. Without God, it is not possible. Everything that I'm going to talk to you about right now about these relationships is only possible because Christ lives in us. These scriptures are not for people in the world. We don't give these scriptures to tell people in the world, this is the way you should do your marriage. It's not possible for them to do that 
in their natural strength. You have to have Christ in you for this to be possible. And that is why in the Old Testament they had loopholes, they had concessions, they had all these things around the hardness of men's hearts. But now in Christ we have a new heart. We have Christ living in us. We have the one who um, is love, his humility, is all of the fruit of the Spirit living on the inside of us. It is possible through him, but only through him and his grace can we do this. So as I talk to you about what these relationships are, what God's ideal of these relationships are, I don't want you to turn me off and say, that's too hard, or I don't, I don't like that. Okay, just hang with me, and let's just see what God's ideal is, okay? And see what kind of help he provides for us to get there, because he wouldn't ask us to do something that he wouldn't provide the help to do it. That's really good news, guys. He wouldn't just say, I'm demanding this out of you, but you're on your own, just see what you can do. No, no, no. He, he's there. If he's saying, this is the ideal, then hey, I'm going to support you all the way. I'm going to get you there. You work with me, and we're going to get there. I'm not going to leave you. So, instead of reading all the scriptures, there's plenty, there's plenty of them, I'm going to tell you where to look, and this week you might want to be reading these. Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6 have uh, instruction for married people and for parents and children. We'll read some of those, but not all of them. 1 Peter 3 has instructions for husbands and wives again. And 1 Corinthians 7 has instructions for married people, people thinking about marriage, and single people. Okay, so I'm going to hit the highlights of these, and then we're going to talk about how is it that we're going to get there. How is God going to help us get there? And remember, when I talk about these uh, relationships, I'm not talking about men and women. We're talking about wives and husbands. That's different, okay? Yes, they are men and women, but I'm not talking about all women do this to all men or all men treat all women like this. We're talking about a marriage relationship. So I'm just giving you all this stuff ahead of time just because these Passages that we're going to talk about are, have been so loaded with wrong ideas, I believe, and interpretations, and have been used in the church even to bring about a lot of harm to people in the name of God, and it's just terrible that that has been done. All right, first of all, to husbands from Ephesians 5, what is, what is the ideal way to relate to your wife, husbands? You are going to lay down your life for her. You are going to lay down your life for your wife. That doesn't just mean you're going to take a bullet for her when, you know, somebody comes in your home that shouldn't be there. That, of course, is included. But it's much harder than that. It's every day. <laughs> you lay down your, your life for your wife. That means you put aside what are your preferences, what are your desires, what are the things that you want and you put her above that, which the Bible tells us that we're in honor to prefer one another, all of us, across the body of Christ. But this is specifically in marriage. You do that because Christ did that for you. You set her apart. The Bible says sanctify her. You speak the word of God over her. You're always going to be speaking what God says about her and to her. You're going to love her like you love your own body. You never would hurt your own body. 
And your body, in fact, does not belong to you anymore. It belongs to your wife. My husband really likes to quote that scripture to me. <laughs> okay, better move on. All right, let's go on to wives. Wives. Okay, here's that S word nobody likes. Submit. You submit, not to all men, but to your husband. You're going to yield your will and your desires to his leadership. So what is that? You're dying to yourself. He's dying to himself. You're dying to yourself. Okay? You respect him. Your body does not belong to you any longer. It belongs to your husband. I won't say anything about that. Amen. All right. <laughs> if you don't think that's pretty much impossible to do, what I just read, laying down your life every day for one another, preferring one another, putting their needs and desires above your own, then you have not tried it <laughs> because it's hard. It's hard. Can I say this, that you have to legitimately have rights and needs and desires to be able to lay them down. This isn't being a doormat, okay? You have those rights. You can exercise them if you want to. Nobody's going to make you not do that. You can say, I want it my way, and I, I'm going to have it my way, and you're not going to get struck with the bolts of lightning, but your marriage is going to suffer. So, how does this work? I'm just going to give you an example from Dave and I's relationship. This happened a few weeks ago, or just a couple of weeks ago, actually. So I was, I don't know why, but I was just feeling neglected. And poor old me. So uh, I went into him, and probably without any warning, I pretty much waylaid him, you know. You're not doing this. You're not doing this, blah, blah, blah. And um, I don't think I was hateful, but I just kind of laid it out there. And he's... He said, you know, what, what would be the natural reaction for somebody that gets kind of attacked that way? Their natural reaction is to defend themselves, right? Hey, but I've done this and this and this, and hey, but you haven't done this and this and this either. You're not Miss Perfect. You know, isn't that our natural reaction? We get defensive, and then we go on the attack, right? My husband is a wise man. He kind of was startled, and he said, uh, could you leave me alone for a few minutes? And I said, okay. <laughs> so I left. That was, I don't know, that's wise. So he, so I left. And then he came in a little bit later and he said, I can't remember his exact words, but he said, you know, if I did that, I, I didn't realize I was doing that. I'm sorry. Can we pray? Can we pray? Can we pray? And I could say, I'm not going to pray with you. Or I can humble myself, right? And so he had humbled himself first, right? Because he didn't get defensive. He humbled himself. It was easy for me to follow that leadership. It was easy for me to submit to that. Because when somebody is humble before you, I don't know. It's God's way. It just affects you in a powerful way. So we prayed together. And if you pray honestly before God, you'll say, Lord, Search my heart. Show me where I messed up. Show me why I wanted to, you know, come against him. Why does that happen? And he'll show you. He'll shine that light. And then you humble yourself under him. You ask for forgiveness. You ask each other for forgiveness. And man, it's good. Right? That's really good. That's really good. Yeah. 
That's really good. We didn't do that when we were first married. No, it was a battle. It was a battle. Yeah. It was my rights or his rights. Who's going to win? Who's stronger? You know, who's got the strongest willpower here? Yeah, that was no good. So can you see how to this, these passages that have been so controversial, they have uh, been an excuse for men abusing women, husbands abusing wives, and husbands abusing children, fathers abusing children, I'm sorry. It's been used wrongly. Those scriptures are for two people who are submitted to Christ and are following after Christ who are willing to humble themselves and want the other person's best all the time. That's where this works. It's not, woman, you submit to me. That is in no way what the Bible says, ever, ever, ever. You can't ever make somebody have a submissive heart because it's an attitude that comes from Christ. You can't force that on anybody. Okay, so... 1 Peter 3, 7 says that men and women are equal heirs of the grace of life. And Peter said to Jewish men, he said, if you don't treat your wife right, your prayers are going to get hindered. Your prayers aren't going to work. So you really want to have a, a relationship with your wife that is, that is great, that is working, that is healthy. If you're a single person, the instructions, again, is such a high ideal. You are to have absolute purity in your walk, and you are to devote yourself to God, body and spirit, for his service. That's the high ideal. That's a hard one, isn't it? Especially in the culture that we live. But Paul was writing this to a culture in Rome that was much more, or at least as perverse as the one that we live in and sex crazed and everything else so he wrote it to people that were struggling with the same things that we do in other words what about children what is the ideal for children have you heard the about the four-year-old who asked his mom hey what happens when your cell phone falls into the toilet and mom says why <laughs> never mind he's got to get out of there um, so what does children what does the bible say to children under this new ideal Ephesians 6, 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Hope all the kids are listening. Got it up on the screen for you. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life on the earth. So obedience and honor. Obedience is what we do outwardly. Honor is, again, a heart attitude. How we consider them in our heart. What else does the Bible tell us in the New Testament? Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Don't provoke them to anger by the way you, you treat them. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. And this is especially, uh, I mean, this also holds for mothers, but for fathers especially, I think uh, fathers' words carry so much weight with their children. So we want to make sure, fathers, that we are speaking words of life over our children, not words of anger. So if all of us did these things, you know, everybody that calls themselves Christ followers, if we are all striving toward those ideals and we are all, you know, just seeing who can humble themselves first, who can ask for forgiveness first, you know, if we were doing all those things, boy, wouldn't that make an impact in our culture? I believe it, it really would. But how do we get there? How do we get there? So our last few minutes together, I just want to talk to you about what we do when we have the ideal up here. I'm sorry, the ideal 
and the real, yeah, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm getting all mixed up. <laughs> the ideal and the real. How do we bridge the gap? And it's God's grace. The ideal and the real is bridged by God's grace. And I want that to be really practical for us. So I asked when I was in prayer about this, I said, Father, give me some steps or show me. How is this just practically applied? Because it's one thing to say, oh, we just need more grace, which we do. We just need more grace. But what does that mean? How do we access the grace of God for our lives? And I thought about this scripture in Titus, Titus chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 and it says for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age so I think our answer is right here that grace teaches us Grace teaches us that we can say no to the things in this world that drag us away from God's plan, and we can say yes to God's plan that helps us to be self-controlled, upright, and godly, even in a culture that's going the opposite direction. So grace can get us where we need to go, and I want to give you four steps. You might want to jot this down, and I want you to think of something that you need in your life for God's grace to change. In especially maybe thinking about your family or your relationships. Um, when I'm talking about grace in this instance, I'm talking about how grace can change you personally because really you're the only person that you control. Yeah, you need to give grace to other people, especially those stinkers that are really bothering you. But as far as you changing, then how does grace apply? So number one, we own it. We own it. We own our own sin, our own selfishness, our own part in the family dysfunction, because all of us have a part in the family dysfunction, because none of us is perfect. We take responsibility. We stop blaming other people. You know, if he didn't do that, then it wouldn't, I wouldn't get so angry and lash out like that. Or if my kids didn't do that, I wouldn't be crazy. They're making me crazy, you know? It's really easy to blame other people or even co-workers or other relatives. It's just something we got to own. We got to say, okay, it's me. I'm the problem. So we own it. That takes humility. That takes humility. Number two, we confess it. We acknowledge our sin to God. We don't just mentally think about it and say, yeah, I did that wrong. No, we actually stop God that was wrong for me to be selfish in that instance. I asked you to forgive me. That's as simple as it is. But it's so powerful because 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a scripture we really need to live by. So we confess our sins. That's not when God finds out about our sin. That's when we get rid of our sin. All right? Now, this third one is important because this is where most of us drop the ball, I think. And that's resist condemnation. Resist condemnation. Whenever we sin, whenever we do something wrong, our conscience automatically condemns us. It's made to do that. It's, there's nothing wrong with our conscience for doing that. But we have to learn how to retrain our conscience so that once we confess that sin, we say, it is no longer my sin anymore. It has been taken 
on the cross and by the blood of Jesus. And to just stay condemned is really an inverted sort of pride that just keeps all the attention on you. But we want to get our attention on him, his sacrifice for us, what he did to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And so we want to resist feeling like we have to feel bad about ourselves. We have to go around with our head down, feel negative, talk negative about ourselves. And it's just not helpful because it will keep you in a cycle of sin. Because what grace is not, some people think this is what grace is. Okay, every time I sin, God will forgive me. Which is true, he will. But, it, but then you're not seeing yourself getting out of it. It's like, oh, I did it again. God forgive me, oh, I did it again. God forgive me, and pretty soon you get hopeless. What we need from grace is the empowerment and the enablement that lifts us up out of that sin and puts us in a higher place where God wants us to be. That's what God's grace can do. But if we get stuck in condemnation, we won't ever get there. So don't skip this step. Don't feel like, well, it's just natural for me to feel bad about that. Resist it. The Bible says there is therefore for now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's another great one, Romans 8.1, to commit to memory. There is therefore now no condemnation, none even when we blow it big time. God's forgiveness is there. There's nothing so bad that you have done that God cannot and will not forgive if you ask him to. And Jesus already took it. He already paid the price. He was already punished for it. You don't have to be punished for it anymore. You don't even have to be punished through condemnation for it anymore. That's such good news. There's just not any better news than that to live free from that. So please access that. And then four is simply to receive the grace. Receive the grace. You say, well, Diane, how do I do that? I'm going to give you an example from my life of how I have applied this, and you can do with this what you will um, and see if it works for you. But I remember one time when I was uh, convicted about the scripture that Jesus said, it's not if you fast, but when you fast. And I thought, man, I never fast. I like to eat all day long. And I like my chocolate, and you know, I, I didn't like that scripture at all. But I kept thinking about, well, this is what the Lord said. So I thought, okay, so I need to commit to this. So I, was, I decided I was gonna fast. I can't remember one day, and, and I was doing really good, and then all of a sudden, something got me upset. I can't remember what it was, emotional or something. And I just raided the refrigerator. I mean, I ate everything I could find in the refrigerator because um, I was upset about something and I just totally blew my fast, you know? And then you feel like, oh man, Jesus fasted 40 days. I can't even fast 24 hours, you know? What's wrong with me? And I just was really, really down on myself. And I felt like the Holy Spirit said, you know, if Jesus was in your shoes, he would have done it perfectly. And I said, that's right, but it's just old me, isn't it? And then the Holy Spirit kind of just pointed me to me, pointed out to me that, you know what? He took all your wrong, all your sin, all your mistakes, and he gave you his perfection instead. So why don't you just act like his perfection is yours? I'm like, wow, that seems like cheating, you know? That doesn't seem right that I could do that. But that's what I see in the word of God, that it's a substitution. 
It is. He took all the stuff that was wrong with me, and he gives me his perfection. And yeah, he wants me to do my best and try and everything, but my best isn't good enough. And when I fail, I have to just accept his perfection that he gives, that he would have done it totally right. I'm like, okay, I'll take that. That's how I'll think about that thing. I won't think about it in condemnation anymore. And do you know what? Um, for about a year and a half now, I've been fasting regularly. Um, and it's, it's not fun. I'm not saying that, but <laughs> I'm saying God has helped me through his grace. But I think if you get stuck in condemnation, you just don't ever emerge from it. And you just pretty much give up. 